Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. What's next with Vitalik Buterin? That is the topic today. We're doing this episode in two parts. The focus is what's next in general, and specifically, what's next for Ethereum in part one, which is being released today. We're going through the Ethereum roadmap from a technical perspective. This is the short to medium term. In part two, we touch on the social, the philosophical, some of the deeper questions around the thing that we've built called Ethereum and its impact for the world. That's going to come out on the following Monday. I'm going to give you a teaser of part one before we get into it and also part two. Part one, that's today's episode. We're going to get Vitalik's reaction on the merge. It took eight years to get here. How did he feel? We ask him that question. Ethereum also no longer burns energy. What are the green arguments for proof of stake? Vitalik makes them. And is this whole sustainability thing really a big deal? We get into that subject. Why did proof of stake take so long? It's in the back of all of our minds. We ask Vitalik that question as well. And he describes the journey to get here to the merge, to proof of stake. What's left is another question. We review the entire roadmap from a technical perspective. We also ask about some concerns. Is Vitalik concerned about staking centralization, for instance? Is he concerned about Ethereum's future censorship resistance? That is all in part one. That is what you are about to hear today. In part two, we get into the social and philosophical. We zoom out. We talk about Ethereum holistically. Is it a network state? Is it like a country? Is that what we've created, a whole digital country? Or is it a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization? If it is a DAO, how in general should DAOs be governed? Should we learn from the corporate world and institute some sort of corporate governance policy? Or are there lessons for us from the political science side of things? We ask Vitalik about that. We also end with, which I think is a really interesting topic. I've never heard Vitalik cover. What's next in AI? in artificial intelligence. We asked Vitalik to speak about AI. Apparently he just went on a recent trip to Silicon Valley, talked to some of the foremost experts in the AI field. So we ask him, I mean, the basics on everyone's mind, is AI coming to destroy humanity or will there be some peaceful coexistence? Will there be an intersection with crypto? Is it crypto versus AI in a cage match? Crypto representing decentralized interests and AI on the centralized side? Also, this was interesting to me, why Vitalik thinks advanced AI might actually be happening sooner than he previously thought. We talk about all of those things on what's next. That's in part two. That is coming out the next Monday. David, what were your thoughts in this episode? Yeah, well done on that intro, by the way. That was the longest intro that we've done on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, yeah, what's next is a really good question. And it's definitely the thing that people are asking the current state of crypto as there doesn't really seem to be too much on the horizon in terms like a narrative. The inflation narrative is gone. You know, COVID's over. The merge is over with. So what is next? But there's plenty of things that are next on the Ethereum roadmap. So this is an updated review, part one, updated review on the Ethereum roadmap, just to get that resynced and downloaded into your brain. But I really think it's that second part, the episode that's going to come next week, that I think is the more interesting things. And as the world seems to be accelerating, Ryan, like technology seems to be getting faster. I know ARC is down in price, but doesn't mean it's down in thesis. 
Kathy's word thesis that the future is coming faster than people expect it to, I definitely subscribe to. And I think Vitalik does as well. And that start to be shown in some of his conversations with people outside of the crypto space, like you alluded to in the AI space. All of these things are around the horizon. And so we need to be aware of them because if you're not seeing them coming at you, they're going to blindside you and you're not going to be ready for it. And so understanding these conversations is the intersections of crypto and AI how DAOs operate and how they should be governed. And what is the long-term network state roadmap for Ethereum and what it may become in relation to that. I think if you understand these questions, you are so far ahead of the rest of the world. And so that's the episode that we try to produce here on this week and next week. I will say in the first part, there is a section where the terms get a little esoteric and technical for you. That's where we go through the roadmap with the merge, the splurge, the purge, the verge, etc. You'll hear it when we get to that part. There is another episode that we did with Vitalik going through this entire roadmap more in layman's terms, and we'll refer to that. There'll be a link in the show notes for that. Some terms like DVT, which we didn't define, or SSV. This is a distributed validator technology, shared secret validators. This is about decentralizing the validator network. Of course, we've also done episodes entirely on this EIP. That's an Ethereum improvement proposal called 4844, which is basic sharding proto-dank sharding. So this scales up the transactions per second on rollups that Ethereum can support. One last thing for you premium subscribers, a special gift. We've actually released both part one and part two today for you. So you don't have to wait. It's all available on the premium feed. You also will have raw access to the debrief where David and I give our thoughts on the Vitalik show. These are our unfiltered thoughts on the episode that was. And there's a link in the show notes if you have not gone premium, upgraded your membership from free to premium, you can go do that and get access to the full episode now. Well, without further ado, our episode with Vitalik Buterin. But first, a word from our sponsors. ZK Sync is an Ethereum layer two network that is pushing the frontier of high performance blockchains that don't compromise on security or decentralization. ZK Sync has combined the power of zero knowledge rollups in the Ethereum virtual machine, enabling developers to build the greatest Web3 projects possible, ones we haven't even seen yet. Crypto needs its killer applications to onboard the world, but crypto killer apps need ZK Sync as a platform to build on first. It's generally accepted that zero knowledge rollups are the conclusion of crypto blockchain scaling technology, and ZK Sync is leading the into the final frontier of crypto economics. So if you're a developer who wants to build your app on a future-proof foundation, which gives your users the best UX possible, check out ZK Sync's website at zksync.io. And yes, there's also going to be a token, so give them a follow on Twitter too, at zksync. Juno is bringing crypto-friendly banking straight into your checking account. With Juno, you can send money from your Juno checking account straight onto a layer two, like Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, and they have ZK Sync and StarkNet support on their way. You can skip the ACH wait times, you can skip all the gas fees, and go straight from your checking account to an Ethereum layer two in seconds. Inside Juno, you can buy and sell crypto with $0 fees, and your Juno checking account comes with a metal MasterCard that gives you up to 5% cash back on your spending. Juno is also giving you $10 cash back on your first crypto deposit and $100 when you set up a direct deposit. This ad just writes itself, so go sign up at juno.finance slash bankless. Rocket Pool is your decentralized Ethereum staking protocol. You can stake your ETH in Rocket Pool and get our ETH in return, allowing you to stake your ETH and use it in DeFi at the same time. You can get 4% on your ETH by staking it with Rocket Pool, but you can get even more by running a node. Rocket Pool is the only staking provider that allows anyone to permissionlessly join their network of validating Ethereum nodes. Setting up your Rocket 
pocket pool node is easier than running a node solo, and you only need 16 ETH to get started. You get an extra 15% staking commission on the pooled ETH that uses your node to stake. You also get RPL token rewards on top. So if you're bullish ETH staking, you can boost your yield by adding your node to the decentralized rocket pool network, which currently has over 1,000 independent node operators. It's yield farming, but with Ethereum nodes. You can get started at rocketpool.net, and you can also join the Rocket Pool community in their Discord. You can find me hanging out there sometimes in the chat, so I'll see you there. Bankless Nation want to introduce you yet again to Vitalik Buterin. He is a crypto economic researcher. He's a builder. He is a philosopher. This is the first time he is appearing on Bankless in a post-merge world. He also has this fantastic blog on his website. You got to check out. I read whenever an article is published at Vitalik.ca. And there's a book out called Proof of Stake, which is a compilation of many of those blog posts. It just came out earlier this month. He also happens to be the guy who wrote the Ethereum white paper. Vitalik, welcome to Bankless, post-proof-of-work, post-merge. How you doing? Uh, great. I'm, uh, you know, obviously uh, really happy that this uh, big, long eight-year journey finally at its completion. You know, really yeah, happy that Proof-of-Stake uh, is uh, here and it's uh, fully here. It's running, it's uh, actually powering the Ethereum chain. The whole transition seems to have uh, happened even far more smoothly than uh, pretty much anyone, including myself, expected. And, uh, you know, just happy that uh, that whole uh, chapter and, um, you know, the chapter of uh, all of the various uh, trolls on the uh, Twitter doubting whether or not proof of stake is even possible is uh, over in the Ethereum ecosystem now gets to, um, you know, move over and start focusing uh, full speed ahead on the next thing. Yeah, so what are the trolls going to focus on after the merge is done, now that we have proof of stake? Because mm. they're not going to just, uh, you know, wave the right flag, right? They're going to move on to the next thing. That's a good question, yeah. I mean, I think... Uh, if I was a troll, I would probably be waving one of two flags. So like one of the flags you can wave is obviously that uh, proof of stake is actually bad. And uh, the other flag you could wave is that sharding will never happen, mm. right? And, you know, like if you want to wave the flag of uh, sharding never happening, then, you know, there are arguments that you could make about how like, oh, you know, the peer-to-peer yeah, -peer networking of data availability sampling is actually complicated and uh, that stuff is... Uh, not going to happen and actually Ethereum's going to hit scalability bottlenecks soon and uh, mm -hmm. you know blah 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 but like betting against the Ethereum ecosystem's ability to produce technology is uh, something that clearly does not have a very good track record so I think uh, yeah no if I was a troll I would definitely kind of stick to the yeah, ideological side and just try to argue that proof of stake is bad somehow. <laughs> hmm. Vitalik you said that the merge was even smoother than you expected. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you could just like put us into the mind of Vitalik as we were going through the merge, because this has been, I mean, the Beacon Chain launched, of course, in December of 2020, but proof of stake as an idea has been along even longer than that. And efforts on the Beacon Chain, it started before the Beacon Chain launched, of course. So this has been a long time coming. So how does it feel to be in the post-merge world? And what was it like to be watching this thing go through? And also, what was it like to be watching the world watch Ethereum in this moment? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the reasons why we're all surprised that the merge went really well is that none of the test debt merges really quite went that amazingly smoothly, right? Like the... Uh, most recent merge before the yeah, real one, I think it was, uh, I think the Robston merge, it even did not finalize for about an hour because uh, slightly more than a third of uh, all of the nodes 
did not make it through the transition and there was some code glitch and they had to update. One of the merges before, like it only had something like 80% online. Like there was always some client combination that just did not survive the transition. And, uh, you know, there were various bugs. I think, uh, one of the reasons uh, why that ended up not carrying over to the mainnet and the mainnet ended up going great, actually, is that a lot of the bugs were not really bugs with the implementation. They were bugs with the settings, right? Is like test nets, they all tend to have, you know, various weird and like settings choices and uh, people are just less used to connecting into test nets and uh, update, making sure they're connected in the right way than they are with the main network. And so we ended up having a lot of bugs on that side. But if you're just watching as a more naive observer from further away, you might think like, oh, you know, every one of these uh, test that merges had at least a bit of an issue. And, uh, you know, surely the main one is going to have uh, even more problems just because it's uh, a much bigger ecosystem. And, um, you know, it's all of these thousands of people and we don't have as good an ability to immediately reach everyone. But, you know, no. And, uh, Actually, the mainnet merge just went incredibly smoothly. Uh, so the process of waiting for the merge to happen, you know, it was uh, in some ways surprisingly uneventful. Like, uh, you know, there was a call, there was a yeah, Zoom call, and uh, everyone was, or at least lots of people were on that call, and I'm sure lots of people were on other calls as well. And uh, we were just, uh, you know, talking about what the merge is, talking about what the merge uh, means for the world. And uh, then, you know, after we got through a few speeches, it's like, oh, wait, okay, now we're less than uh, five minutes away. And then everyone just uh, started waiting for the countdown. And uh, eventually, you know, the terminal block, which uh, is the block that surpasses the total terminal difficulty, was hit. So that's the block that like, surpassed the threshold for basically how many hashes the proof of work chain is supposed to do before it turns off. And uh, that was hit. And then immediately after that, the first proof of stake block happened and everyone celebrated. And then we waited, um, you know, 12 minutes for it to finalize. And then we finalized and then everyone uh, celebrated again. And uh, like, that was basically it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really to it sound so simple. Yeah, <laughs> easy, right? <laughs> we should have done this years ago. <laughs> but uh, Vitalik, mm -hmm. to David's kind of second question, part of, I think, the interest from the Ethereum community is watching the world react to the merge, right? Mm. And you were mentioning the trolls earlier. And, you know, if you were a troll, what you'd do is probably like argue that proof of stake is a bad idea entirely. As I was like looking at the world's reaction, there was one thing that kept popping up in mainstream media. And that was this energy reduction narrative, mm. this decrease in electricity cost. And I do think that trolls, at least from a mainstream perspective, right, are going to have a hard time arguing with mainstream that proof of work is superior to proof of stake from a, you know, a green perspective, from a climate change perspective. But what's your take on this? The whole ETH energy reduction thing, do you think that is overrated? Do you think that it's underrated? How much does this actually matter in the scheme of things? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of uh, levels at which you can look at that question. One is the object level issue of like how important uh, the climate issue is and uh, how big of an impact uh, the switch to proof of stake is on the climate, right? So I think my view on the uh, climate issue is kind of fairly boring and moderate, which is like, it's not a literal existential risk in the sense that, you know, it's uh, not going to kill anywhere close to the number of people that like, you know, something like World War Three would, but at the same time, it's uh, 
like a really crappy and terrible thing. And uh, if you look at you know the studies of uh, what worst case global warming could lead to, it's like reducing the GDP of uh, some of the already poorest uh, countries in the world by like a factor of two or three, right? So it's uh, a yeah, you know, quite a a big deal as far as uh, big deals that actually uh, exist uh, in the world are concerned. And um, I think uh, anything that we can do to try to move uh, beyond our carbon-heavy present is uh, definitely a uh, good thing. And I mean, obviously, there are all these um, arguments that uh, proof-of-work proponents uh, like to trot out that like, oh, you know, actually, this is incentivizing uh, green energy production, or actually, this is using energy that would not be used for other purposes, because proof-of-work is really good at like finding the energy that would not be useful anywhere else. But no, generally, when I look at those arguments from far away, they yeah, always have this kind of feeling of self-serving bias. It's like, it just feels like the algorithm that these people are running is like not like, oh, you know, let me neutrally figure out whether or not proof of work is good or bad. It's like, oh, let me yeah, try my best to come up with arguments for as you know, like soldiers in this uh, rhetorical war of and you know, like help me justify the cause I already uh, uh, decided long ago I stand for. You're saying it's a convenient rationale like yeah. it was really convenient that proof of work mm -hmm. people think that proof of work is green totally like it's uh, the, the arguments to me feel like imagine if uh, someone from uh, philip morris uh, came to you and said like hey you know philip morris is actually an incredibly ethical company because we're contributing to the incentive to cure lung cancer Right. right. Like, <laughs> this is basically what happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's all of these like methane, like flaring things. And, uh, I think the, the, the challenge with them is that like you can always identify, you know, like these really specific situations where there's something really unusual about the yeah, energy market. But like the more you zoom out and like think about this in the long game, it's like, you know, no, if you consume energy, then that increases energy consumption and uh, energy consumption for the next while is going to contribute to climate issues. And, you know, there are going to be like these little discrepancies in uh, both directions, but the little discrepancies over time, they're just going to, I think, uh, average out. But just like the one big fact in the center of it is the thing that's going to dominate. Uh, so, you know, people argue that, you know, proof of work is like good at sort of grabbing those uh, little nooks of energy that nothing else is because proof of work has this special property that you can do it from anywhere. But at the same time, proof of work has this property that if you want to make good use of your hardware, you have to keep it running 24 seven, right? Like this concept of, oh, I'm going to only turn on my hardware at those specific times when there is spare electricity and otherwise I'm going to shut it off. Like that's total BS, right? Cause just because like, the hard proof hardware cost is a big portion of the all proof of work cost. And so if you want to be competitive, um, you know, you have to use your machine and you have to make good use of your machine until Moore's law causes that machine to expire and requires you to replace it with a better machine. Uh, so yeah, in, in general, I'm, I guess, on the whole, not convinced by any of that. And I think, uh, you know, reducing energy consumption is good and great. And I'm, uh, immensely glad that uh, we as an ecosystem have done it. So that's the first level of the question, right? The second level of the question is, uh, I guess, from a, a kind of more selfish uh, Ethereum ecosystem uh, point of view, like, obviously, yeah, the fact that we're not contributing to breaking the environment anymore is uh, good for Ethereum from a narrative perspective. And uh, 
I think there are lots of signs that this is actually true. Like I've personally talked to a bunch of people in, you know, corporate and government contexts and just lots of different places that are like, hey, we want to do blockchain stuff, but there's just too many people within our organization that are really don't want to be contributing to, um, you know, making the planet blow up. And, uh, you know, if uh, the merge completes, then like a lot of them have even said, like, you know, yeah, I'll be much more excited about using Ethereum. And I think a lot of that's true. I think uh, the uh, subconscious line of thinking that at least uh, some of these people that I'm kind of dismissively referring to as trolls as uh, referring to is uh, trying to make is like, oh, you know, this environment thing is like a centralized world economic forum ideology. And uh, chances are, if you're into that stuff, then you're into centralized world economic forum stuff uh, generally. And so like most of uh, people who care about that are going to also care about, you know, making sure we have global financial surveillance because they think that's the only way to prevent crime or whatever. And so why are you even trying to go after those people? And uh, so you know, the people that you, crypto should be going after are like these sort of steely based people who understands that like that centralized world economic forum ideology is total crap and like actually the environment's going to be fine and like methane is great for the environment and everything's going to be solar within five years anyway. And so like I think there's this sort of implied subconscious uh, viewpoints that, you know, Really, there's just two kinds of people, one or the other, and uh, the World Economic Forum bug eaters are a lost cause. And so you might as well go after the base cool people, and the base cool people don't really care about the environment. And so you might as well use proof of work. But I feel like that viewpoint is just false. Like, I've just, been, I don't know, I've, uh, you know, talked to lots of people. I've been to uh, like 53 countries now and, uh, you know, chatted with all kinds of people in various industries and governments and like, I don't think it's true that like there's this binary and I think there's uh, plenty of people that like really do deeply believe in the, uh, you know, the freedom thing and the uh, open source thing and the, uh, you know, decentralized, uh, like censorship resistant global neutral platform thing, but like also do care about like not blowing up the planet at the same time. And like, I feel like the Ethereum community in general is probably a sort of more you know, on average, uh, tilted toward that middle, though there's definitely people on all sides of the spectrum. So, I mean, you know, it, it sort of ties into the uh, social and cultural bet that I think uh, Ethereum is uh, making that uh, some of those uh, kind of hardcore proof of uh, work proponents are taking the opposite side of the bet. So, you know, I'm happy with the side of the bet I've made and I yeah, plan, plan to keep making it. So we'll see. By the way, for YouTube viewers, the reason David and I have a smile on our face is because we just noticed Vitalik's login name is Adam Back, <laughs> which is uh, maybe one of the, the, the proof CEOs of worker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of the Philip Morris's fighting for proof of work. Mm. But Vitalik, can I ask you, is it material? Like, is the difference between Ethereum switching from proof of work hmm. to proof of stake, does that have an actual material impact? I think you tweeted out a Justin Drake figure, and I'm not sure where he got this number, where he sourced it, something like a 0.2% mm-hmm. reduction on worldwide electricity consumption, which feels very material. Mm-hmm. What kind of numbers have you seen? And mm-hmm. are these actually material numbers? Or do you think it was like hmm. much ado about nothing all along? I mean, uh, the 0.2% figure definitely roughly lines up with other statistics that I've seen, right? Like we've seen statistics that like Ethereum mining uses about as much electricity as um, I think it was either half of Singapore sometimes or Austria sometimes. And like those countries are about 
0.1% of the world population, but they're a wealthy 0.1%. So I think uh, if you just look at all those different estimates, like somewhere vaguely in the 0.2% range uh, does make sense. Um, I mean, the one argument that I have seen people make is that like, oh, that hash power is not going away. It's just going to go to Ethereum Classic. But And that's clearly true to some extent in the short term, but that just obviously can't be true in the medium or long term, right? Like in the medium or long term, like we've basically reduced the uh, amount of uh, reward that gets paid out to people who participate in like GPU style uh, proof of work by probably a factor of 10, right? And so in the medium and long term, the uh, amount of effort going into that style of proof of work is also going to go down by a factor of 10. Yeah, yeah, we've certainly reduced the incentive. Therefore, it should follow that there will be less miners in the future. We were talking to Danny Ryan and Timbeko yesterday on the live stream, and Danny gave out this metric that I want to run by you where Yes, we killed 0.2% of global electricity consumption, but he said that if Ether price went 10x, then it would have actually have been 2%. Mm. And I'm wondering if that's how the math checks out. And so like, mm. really, it's like, yes, we killed it at 0.2%, but if we believe that Ethereum is going to be the global settlement layer of the future of everything, mm -hmm. then the future energy consumption that we eliminated is actually much more significant and that is actually the bigger story. I'm wondering if that math checks out and what you think about that. Yeah, uh, I think I fully agree with that. I mean, it you know, obviously all depends on your projections for just how big the uh, Ethereum and uh, crypto thing is going to get. But uh, in the bull cases where Ethereum keeps becoming a more and more significant thing, then yeah, absolutely. It's a much bigger savings than 0.2%. Mm -hmm. Vitalik, like we alluded to earlier, the road to proof of stake has been long and winding with a few dead ends, a few backtracks, and then moving forward to where we ultimately got here today. But for the listeners that came in during the 2021 bull market or later in 2022, they might not know why Ethereum proof of stake took so long. So I'm wondering if you can kind of just, for the listeners that weren't here in the eras of 2017 to 2020, kind of give a recap to the journey thus far. Like, why did proof of stake take so long? And what were the dead ends and the roads that we almost went down? What were that path like? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so... The roadmap like, really did change a huge amount over the last few years, right? Like in 2017 to the beginning of 2018, there was this whole Casper FFG concept where we would basically build the proof of stake system as a smart contract on top of the proof of work chain. And then step one would be to kind of get that running. And then uh, step two would be to, uh, you know, have this kind of separate sharding chain. And then we would really slowly migrate the thing. And then before 2017, the uh, roadmap was something even more different. It's like, hey, let's uh, start a new chain from scratch. And then basically just completely retire the existing one and uh, demand all of the applications to actively move over. And then in the middle of uh, 2018, Justin uh, Drake made this uh, post on a pragmatic PLS aggregation where he argued that the uh, Ethereum blockchain should make really heavy use of uh, BLS aggregation in order to support as uh, many validators as possible and uh, be able to be a more decentralized chain. And that, I think... Uh, Ended up being a really uh, prescient decision, ended up really simplifying the uh, architecture and helping us a lot. But one of the consequences of that meant that we would not be able to actually uh, build the thing as a smart contract. And instead, it would make much more sense to build a new chain. And uh, 
then find some way to like, migrate the Ethereum system over to it over time. So work on the beacon chain started. Now, then simultaneously, there was this parallel track of working on uh, different ways of uh, how to transition existing Ethereum into the yeah, beacon chain, right? So in 2018 to 19, there was this concept of execution environments where it's like you can think of them as being sort of like rollups, except much more enshrined and uh, where the chain would not just provide data, it would also provide a, a minimal execution layer. And uh, the idea is that the existing Ethereum system would become one of those rollups. I think back then we were also really contemplating trying to upgrade from the EVM to uh, WebAssembly. And uh, that's one of those things that we ended up dropping over time, right? Like one of the unfortunate things that I think was necessary as part of the merge was that there were a lot of... Uh, dreams that kind of got dropped and the yeah, ambition did end up decreasing a bit. Uh, so the desire to improve the VM ended up uh, kind of dropping off. And part of that was definitely just us noticing that out of all of the ETH killers, the only ones that really had significant success were the ones that just uh, accepted the EVM and the ones that uh, tried to argue that, oh, the EVM is total crap and we'll replace it with something much more performant and better. Those, maybe with the exception of uh, Solana, ended up uh, kind of falling off mostly. There's uh, obviously the question of like just how many other things we could use the merge as an opportunity to reform. And I think we did manage to reform some things, but a lot of other things did manage to like basically stay again as they are. I mean... Right now, the yeah, Ethereum clients are still processing the pre-merge chain, right? And there was a desire, I think, to use the merge as a yeah, reset opportunity and uh, allow Ethereum clients to not have to process that history. And I think that still will happen with uh, EIP-4444, but that's something that we're going to have to wait a bit longer for. So there's just a lot of these little things on which uh, the ambition of the yeah, project decreased a bit, but it uh, slowly turned into a yeah, more and more realistic thing and then you know finally we settled on a design and uh, we even settled on a yeah, very simplified design for the merge uh, and uh, then we went for it and the design that we finally settled on the one that we know of today which is now current ethereum do you think if we had like waited and like thought about it more and done some more research we would have found a different design or do you feel like the design that we settled on is like the final logical conclusion of ethereum proof of stake so there's two questions there, I think. One is, what is the better long-term form of uh, proof of stake? Mm -hmm. And the other is, if the research team and only the research team had had 500 years to spin its wheels, could it have come up with a better way of uh, managing the transition? So for the first question, I think the answer is like, no, we are currently very far from uh, uh, what a, a truly optimal Ethereum proof of stake would look like, right? And, um, you know, recently we've been having these uh, discussions about single slot finality, which is just a big redesign of the yeah, consensus. There's uh, all of these designs around like Merkle trees and different ways to implement sharding and uh, different ways to implement deposit and withdrawal logic and all of this stuff. So still a lot of improvement work to go, and I think we do still have the opportunity to keep working hard over the next few years to make that improvement actually happen. But then on the question of uh, was the merge as it was done the best way to do the transition, I would say maybe yes, maybe no, right? Uh, so I think uh, if I could like give myself a research time capsule back to 2014, I probably would have said 
Don't bother with the Casper FFG design and instead implement a simpler version of chain-based proof of stake first and so that you can move to that in like maybe around 2018 and then like properly yeah, improve uh, proof of stake uh, later on a, yeah, a more relaxed schedule. Where like I do think that we yeah set ourselves uh, goals that were a little bit too high for the yeah proof of stake that we moved to for the first round, and we even ended up not accomplishing some of those goals. Right, like there's a lot of these security issues that uh, arose from the specific design of the Casper FFG system and the way that the LMD Ghost and Fork Choice side and the yeah BFT consensus side like uh, interact with each other. And that's one of the bigger things that we're going to have to resolve with a single SWAT finality change. Yeah, basically, I think uh, create a simpler and less powerful uh, proof of stake and uh, move to it earlier would have been uh, one of the bigger changes uh, that I would have made. But the format of the merge, I think, was uh, excellent. Like, I yeah, still don't think that there is a yeah, better merge format that we could have come up with. And I definitely hope that other chains like, uh, you know, Zcash and uh, Dogecoin are probably two uh, proof of work chains uh, whose uh, core dev communities I talk to a lot and I'm pretty friendly with. Like, I hope they learn from the merge and they yeah, move over to proof of stake over the next four years or so. So Vitalik, if you could go back in time, it sounds like one thing you might change is you would have simplified the proof of stake kind of conception and maybe got it in the roadmap a little bit earlier, deployed it a little bit earlier. I mean, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, we're here now, and that's fantastic. But we did have some false starts and some meanderings mm -hmm. along the way. And it, I think for everybody involved, it took longer than we thought. I mean, eight years. Mm -hmm. And proof of stake had been in the Ethereum social contract from the beginning. Yet there was also a benefit. And maybe that benefit came in the form of like proof of work distribution, right? So more ETH stake was distributed over a you know, greater number of entities, I guess we would assume or suppose with proof of work distribution. And so that was a benefit. I mean, overall, is there anything else big that you would go back and change? Or are you satisfied with how this turned out? Hmm. I mean, definitely, yeah, had we known the results of the meanderings, it would have been uh, great if we could just skip to the results immediately, right? So the design of the proof of stake system and all of the choices of like, should it be a chain or a smart contract or something else is one side of it. The other side of it is the layer two scaling roadmap. Like I think Optimism and Arbitrum could have been finished and fully trustless by now had we known from the start that rollups are the way to go. And, um, you know, we had not spent as many resources kind of going down the state channels and plasma rabbit holes. Like I think going down those rabbit holes was useful from the yeah, point of view of like inventing 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. And I do think <laughs> that state channels uh, make a lot of sense in some specific use cases, but I definitely think that we yeah, made a yeah, false step in uh, like at first really yeah, hoping that that would be the way that Ethereum applications would scale in general. And then with Plasma, like there was this uh, hope that we could find some way to generalize it, but uh, that ended up just not working. And then two years later, I think we ended up learning that like, well, Actually, pretty much nobody wants a scaled Ethereum that's just a payment system. Everyone who's in Ethereum already wants uh, something general purpose. And so there's no point in making even a roll-up unless it's a general purpose one. Mm -hmm. hmm. Vitalik, you know we use this going west metaphor. Mm. We're on a journey into the frontier. There's a dark fog of war ahead of us, but some of the guests on the podcast are people that have scouted into the unknown and 
come back to tell us what's in the future. And so as somebody who knows the history of Ethereum very, very well, and also understands cryptography and crypto economics very, very well, can you like place us in history or on like, you know, a map or a journey of where we are going and where Ethereum is? I remember you saying something along the lines of post proof of stake, Ethereum is about 55% completed. Could you talk about like, where are we Mm. in Ethereum's trajectory and where are we in, in crypto's uh, relevancy to the world. Uh, sure. Uh, so I think uh, one way of uh, looking at it from a uh, trajectory of the protocol point of view is to look at the uh, roadmap from last year and basically ask like, how much progress has been made. Right. Uh, so if let me just uh, Google this uh, now and let's check Ethereum roadmap on uh, Google Images, and I'm sure it'll be yeah uh, up there. There it is. So just uh, looking at the uh, five tracks, right, we can go uh, through the tracks one by one. Uh, So the merge is uh, completed now. Um, The things in the merge section that are not completed are, one is the post-merge hard fork with withdrawals, right? That's um, obviously the uh, one of the next uh, big priorities right after the merge. It's a pretty simple hard fork, and uh, like we basically can know what to do. There's a spec. Um, I think the main debate at this point is to do it at the same time as 4844 or do it um, earlier and then uh, do 4844 a bit later. But, uh, you know, otherwise, it's like we're not far from it. Distributed validators, I think, uh, still progressing. Actually, haven't uh, checked up on that team uh, for, for a while, but I'm, I imagine they've made quite a bit of progress, though. It's uh, not quite 100% done yet. Is that DVT from Obel? Is that what that is? Yes, it's uh, okay. DVT, aka SSV. AKA, you know. SSV, right, right, right. Yeah. Cool. Right. So, th- And then if we look in the longer term extras, uh, single secret leader election, there's been some great work on the cryptography there. The cryptography itself has been uh, published. Um, single SWAT confirmations, or what we now call single SWAT finality, that's uh, a bigger item. And I think it's an item that has been really moved uh, earlier in the roadmap because people just recognize the value and the importance of it much more. And I think this is one of those things that we are going to have to kind of have a uh, big public discussion with the community at some point, because uh, there are huge benefits to a single SWAT uh, finality, but at the same time, there are some uh, costs. Uh, So like, for example, some compromises either to the uh, 32 ETH uh, validator balance uh, property uh, or to uh, the level of uh, economic finality that we can expect and uh, just like different trade-offs of uh, what kinds of things would have to be sacrificed if uh, we want to be able to uh, actually have uh, finality in like say 32 seconds or something like that. Um, and then better signature aggregation is just a subset of single solid finality at this point. So that's the merge. Uh, basically, the uh, entire left half of uh, that box is finished and the right half of the box is still to go, which is great. The surge. Uh, so there, um, I think uh, things have obviously been reshuffled a bit, right? So uh Back then, there was the whole 4488 versus 4844 stuff. And I think uh, lately, 4844 has been uh, winning. And uh, it's basically fully specified. It's just uh, waiting an implementation. Um, and so that would be... I would call 4844 the equivalent of uh, basic sharding. 
Though I think one of the uh, interesting things with dink sharding, which happened after this roadmap, is that uh, dink sharding really moved us away from the concept of having discrete shards, like shards as individual units. Instead, we're just moving to this more amorphous concept of like there's these big data blobs, and there is a distributed procedure for verifying the data blobs, but uh, you know otherwise there's just blobs and there isn't like a hard point where one of the one section of a blob ends and another section of a blob begins. You know, I would uh, say yeah, the short term uh, called data expansion box got short circuited a bit. The basic sharding box that's that, that green bar is probably a bit further, and then the uh, basic sharding and data availability sampling like that's a yeah, really big research area. Uh, so you know, it's still uh, quite a bit of stuff left to go. Then the verge of Merkle trees. That one is um, interesting in that I think there's been a lot of uh, progress on implementing uh, vertical trees. The main sticking point at this point is that the transition from our existing tree structure to a vertical tree is going to be something that's like a big engineering challenge to implement, and there's still debates about how to do it. And I think in general, it's been deprioritized a little bit uh, relative to getting scalability out because scalability is just like so incredibly important in core to Ethereum. The purge um, is, uh, so history expiry EIP4444 um, making some uh, good progress. Um, banning self-destruct, I think at some point we just have to pull the trigger and say we're going to do it. State expiry. State expiry has been deprioritized a lot uh, because of uh, proposer builder separation. Like basically, if you have PBS and you have statelessness, then the number of actors that actually have to hold the entire state is really tiny, right? Regular validators don't have to hold the state because regular validators would just have to verify other people's blocks. They're not mm. uh, creating their own blocks. And so that's something where the order of operations also got uh, reworked a bit, right? But, uh, you know, which is a good thing. Like, I think state expiry being deprioritized uh, does give us a lot of uh, freedom to figure out all the other stuff first. Um, and then... All of these other things about just like making the Ethereum protocol cleaner and like getting rid of RLP, cleaning up the block structure. Like there's people who like I think wants to do them, but they're kind of low priority. And uh, I think uh, Ethereum is going to be in a place where it's able to do these sort of more aesthetic things that just have to do with making the protocol simpler and look cleaner, but probably would need another like a year or so of uh, firefighting right like this is one of the big things that big changes that's going to happen with ethereum protocol development over the next uh, five years which is really moving away from firefighting mode and uh, moving from you know we got to get this fast 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 the community's angry at us uh, <laughs> you know people really really want this stuff and now to this kind of more calmer uh a trajectory of uh, you know like really valuing stability and sustainability and I think the merge already like really uh, reduces the pressure on the yeah, Ethereum ecosystem a lot, but I think a yeah, successful transition at least to proto dank sharding is going to be yeah, the rest of the way. And then, you know, full dank sharding can happen on its own time, cleanups can happen on their own time, virtual trees can happen on their own time, and so uh, the pressure on the ecosystem to do those things quickly can uh, for, at least uh, be a bit lower. And then... Vitalik? Yeah. 
Before we get to the splurge, mm. can we just kind of summarize mm -hmm. for folks? And I'll remind Bankless listeners that we did an entire episode on the Ethereum roadmap where we went through the merge, surge, mm -hmm. verge, purge, and splurge mm -hmm. in extreme detail. So make sure you catch that episode. But high level here, the functions of these various categories, the merge is about transitioning to proof of stake. And that's pretty much done. There are a few things to tie off, but we're getting real close. It's almost done. The surge is about scalability of the Ethereum network, Ethereum economy, in the form primarily of roll-up scalability. And the big functionality to watch there is the proto-dank sharding EIP 4844, which is maybe upcoming, don't know when yet, but that's the surge. And then the verge is about statelessness, and that helps us further decentralize the network, allow individuals to run nodes. And so does the purge. It increases the, it eliminates some of the technical debt, allows us to run nodes better. And when we have the merge, the surge, the verge, and the purge, that's kind of the base functionality. And I wanted to just pause there and reiterate that before we get to the splurge, because it feels like the splurge, that's the goodie bag. Those are all of the extra things that we'd like to implement. But the core of this thing from a roadmap perspective is probably the first four categories. Is that you know, approximately, right? Is mm -hmm. that in the ballpark, Vitalik? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, I do think that like one connotation that it's important to get away from is the yeah, connotation that the splurge is, uh, or anything in the splurge bucket is less important than the other four. Um, I think, uh, you know, there are, the individual items are smaller, but a lot of them are quite valuable. So like, for example, account abstraction is very valuable. Mm. Um, PBS or some kind of uh, like, stabilization of the MEV situation is um, obviously super valuable. And uh, with the discussion of uh, censorship resistance, it uh, becomes even more important. EVM improvements are um, like, that's a yeah, smaller one, but you know, like EVM big into arithmetic, it can uh, be a big deal. Uh, basically let us uh, do a lot more cryptography inside of the EVM and probably get half the benefits of uh, what we wanted to do with Wasm uh, back in the day. ZK snarking everything is like actually a really big deal. Uh, so like I think for if I had to choose between giving up the Verge and giving up ZK snarks, I would probably give up on the Verge. Wow. Oh. Yeah, like the... One of the, the the reasons why is because uh, like ZK Snarks could give us a sort of poor man's verge where basically we don't bother with vertical trees and we solve the uh, witness size problem by uh, snarking the witness instead. And now th that that approach like it's very ugly. It has a lot of weaknesses. It'll require a far larger amount of uh, like work for the Snark provers than uh, would uh, otherwise be necessary. But like it at least kind of works and get a gets us the objective. And snarking in general is just incredibly valuable for making it easier for people to verify stuff on chain. Yeah, so that's something that's uh, really valuable. Like uh, ZK Synarchs are, I think I've said this before, in my opinion, they're as big a yet and as important to technological breakthrough as blockchains are. Mm, wow. And uh, we're going to start seeing them more and more over the course of uh, this decade. But, um, you know, it still uh, would take a while until that technology gets to full maturity. So, you know, fingers crossed and hoping that it just keeps on progressing peacefully. And uh, we'll see. 
Lens Protocol is an open source tech stack for building decentralized social media applications. It is the new era for social media. We all have toxic relationships with our Web2 apps. We want to break up with them, but we can't. These applications own our digital lives and all the relationships that we've made. We need to break through to a new paradigm of social networking applications that we control rather than them controlling us. Lens isn't a social media app. It's a protocol to let a thousand Web3 social apps bloom. Lens is a permissionless and transparent social graph that is owned by the user. In crypto, we say not your keys, not your crypto. And on Lens, we say not your keys, not your profile. With Lens, your followers go with you to whatever social media application you want to use. And instead of being trapped by an algorithm chosen by that app, Lens lets you you choose the way you want to experience your social media. Lens is the last social media handle that you'll ever need to create. So in order to get started, there is a secret code word in the show notes. Enter that code word in the Google form linked and you'll be well on your way to entering the world of Web3 Social. Arbitrum is an Ethereum layer two scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. Some of the coolest new NFT collections have chosen Arbitrum as their home, while DeFi protocols continue to see increased liquidity and usage. You can now bridge straight into Arbitrum from more than 10 different exchanges, including Binance, FTX, Huobi, and Crypto.com. Once on Arbitrum, you'll enjoy fast transactions with cheap fees, allowing you to explore new frontiers of the crypto universe. New to Arbitrum, for a limited time, you can get Arbitrum NFTs designed by the famous artists Ratwell and Sugoi for joining the Arbitrum Odyssey. The Odyssey is an eight-week-long event where you complete on-chain activities and receive a free NFT as a reward. Find out more by visiting the Discord at discord.gg Arbitrum. You can also bridge your assets to Arbitrum at bridge.arbitrum.io and access all of Arbitrum's apps at portal.arbitrum.1 in order to experience DeFi and NFTs the way it was always meant to be, fast, cheap, secure, and friction-free. The Brave browser is the user-first browser for the Web3 internet, with over 60 million monthly active users. And inside the Brave browser, you'll find the Brave wallet, the secure multi-chain crypto wallet built right into the browser. Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy, but there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. And most crypto wallets are browser extensions, which can easily be spoofed. But the Brave wallet is different. No extensions are required, which gives Brave browser an extra level of security versus other wallets. Brave wallet is your secure passport for the possibilities of Web3, and supports multiple chains, including Ethereum and Solana. You can even buy crypto directly inside the wallet with RAMP. And of course, you can store, send, and swap your crypto assets, manage your NFTs, and connect to other wallets and DeFi apps. So whether you're new to crypto or you're a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions and it's time to switch to the Brave wallet. Download Brave at brave.com bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. So that is the roadmap progress graphic. Mm -hmm. And we've looked at that kind of lens on what Ethereum looks like next, what Ethereum looks like moving forward. There are a few other lenses we might want to put on this topic and this question, Vitalik, before we tie it off. One is the economics, maybe the economics of staking. Are they now set in stone, the economics of Ethereum, or are they you know, scheduled to change at some point? If change, what sort of changes might you envision? Mm -hmm. That's definitely a good and a very important uh, question. So changes to the uh, economics of uh, staking that I could see happening. Um, one of them might be that uh, I think there are ways to make the deposit and withdrawal queues faster, at least in the normal case. So things like allow a huge amount of deposits and withdrawals to happen if the uh, chain finalizes. So that'll just make the experience for validators easier. And uh, that'll also reduce the uh, incentive to participate in stake pools, and it'll make it easier to have smaller and more decentralized stake pools, for example. So that's one. Then um, number two would be 
changes to the MEV um, architecture would obviously affect the uh, economics of staking. Like even today, the uh, MEV uh, revenue is a, a pretty significant portion of uh, staking uh, revenue, right? And like there is some economic benefit uh, to uh, participating in MEV boost. But that's uh, something that'll obviously change a lot, and especially if the Ethereum protocol includes some form of uh, enshrines proposed builder separation. And then if uh, Justin gets his way and uh, we also add MEV smoothing, which is like a, an, a change that uh, basically forces MEV revenue to get redistributed to all of the uh, validators instead of being concentrated in one of them, then that will reduce the variance of uh, staking revenue, which um, also reduces the uh, incentive to be part of a stake pool. So a lot of uh, little changes uh, like that, I think, uh, are going to happen as a result of uh, some uh, changes to staking that can happen. The system requirements of uh, having a staking node hopefully will uh, decrease over time, especially as things like statelessness come in, and probably even more once uh, ZK Snarks come in. Right, like I think my longer term dream for Ethereum is basically that uh, all that a staker will have to do is just download and verify a bunch of data, uh, verify once an arc, and then uh, sign something. And if that's the case, then like staking on mobile phones is going to be extremely viable, right? Like even if you have a phone on the go, most likely, because uh, it will not consume a huge amount of uh, battery. The only thing it will consume a huge amount of is bandwidth, right? But I, I think it will take five or 10 years to get there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm hopeful, I think. Uh, and we also have BLS signature aggregation, which can allow us to go from the 32 ETH stake down to 16, maybe down to eight. Yes. So like the future sci-fi version of Ethereum is I'm just like walking around with my phone with a Ether verifying the network. Right. So this actually gets into one of these uh, bigger challenges Um and uh, like trade-offs in the uh, single slot finality roadmap, right? So in the single slot finality roadmap, uh, basically the idea would be that uh, like instead of all validators participating over the course of uh, 32 slots, uh, you would have uh, validators, every validator staking and uh, sending a message uh, during every um, individual slot. And if you do that, then... There's basically two ways to do this, right? One way is uh, what we call super committees, uh, where basically you don't literally have every validator uh, staking in every slot. You have like some subset, but it's a pretty big subset. Like it's about 4 million ETH worth of uh, validators. But then you just rapidly rotate all of the yeah, validators in and out uh, to try to make it fair over like even pretty short time scales. Uh, so that's one approach. And if you take that approach, then it should be very possible to reduce the yeah, minimum ETH deposit size at the same time. The other approach would be to say, well, you know, we are just going to literally have every validator stake in every slot. And this is something that realistically would do some combination of increasing the load on the network and uh, reducing the number of validators that the network can support. Now, one nice thing that it'll be able to do is it'll be able to basically remove the need for individual validators to have multiple slots, right? Like someone who has 10,000 ETH, they'll be able to just have one slot that's just 10,000 ETH. Mm -hmm. And there's some technical reasons why we can't do that today that have to do with like shuffling and committee assignment. But both of those things would go away if we have a single slot finality and if we have a dank sharding um, or even a proto dank sharding. Um, and so... 
then like basically you'll be able to have um you know validators with like 10 eth alongside validators with uh, 10,000 eth so the one uh, nuance though is that we would not be able to like have a hard guarantee of uh, 32 eth um being like of it being possible to stake with 32 eth right basically because like we would not be able to know what the distribution of other stakers is right like we'd be able to support a maximum of um you know maybe about 130,000 uh, validators or uh, maybe a bit more but if it just still happens that everyone who has a lot of ETH still chooses to split their ETH up into like 32 ETH just, uh, you know, either because the uh, wealth distribution turns out that way or because like some people just want to be mean and take up more slots, then like unfortunately the minimum stake staking amount might end up like increasing a little bit higher than the 32 ETH, right? And that's one of the yeah, risks of uh, that approach. But at the same time, the benefit of that approach will be a lot more protocol simplicity, a lot more security. Um, the uh, chain would like finalize and uh, you would get up to maximum security after like 32 seconds would be a number that uh, I think uh, could be realistic to hope for. So, you know, there would be a lot of benefits, but at the same time, there would be this cost. But on the other hand, um, you know, if you wanted to try to optimize for having some native ability to stake with like one ETH or four ETH, then we would need to talk about much bigger uh, validator set sizes and uh, bigger, uh, like needing to handle a larger number of validators at the same time, but also having this like super committee mechanism, and then there would be more complexity, and there would be more different kinds of uh, trade-offs. And... Yeah, so basically, you know, you either get one really good thing and you sacrifice a bit on the other side, or you get a different uh, really good thing, but then you sacrifice in other ways. If you want a more detailed uh, document that describes uh, this uh, trade-off, I think if you just search paths towards single SWAT finality, uh, then uh, like we talk about uh, the two strategies um, in there, the uh, uh, super committees versus uh, global uh, validator set. And like I try my best to uh, explain to readers what the uh, benefits and, and the uh, disadvantages of uh, each approach are, but I think like because this affects not just the technology, because but it also affects the economics and it also affects the uh, staker experience. I think it's important for this to be a uh, community-wide discussion. So I would uh, really welcome people to read that document and uh, kind of start you know making their own uh, views uh, heard on like what things they uh, value more and what things they value less and we can keep trying to improve these proposals into something that can uh, you know hopefully yeah, come close to satisfying everyone let's flag that for the bankless community theorem mm. community which is we'll include a link in the show notes to the post paths to single slot finality it sounds like there's going to be a lot of conversation around that mm. in the months ahead as we you know figure out as a community what to do there and th those trade-offs are real Vitalik mm -hmm. it is always difficult to adjust you know magic numbers like 32 ETH up and yet there seem to be some real benefits to doing that and there are also benefits in terms of decreasing the minimum amount to stake as well but I want to ask you more broadly from another lens on this I mean we've gone through the product roadmap lens from almost like a developer's perspective, the features that need to implement. But I think there are like maybe three questions mm -hmm. in people's minds or three different topics that have come up recently about Ethereum's future. The one is this concern or question over centralization of stake, which we can get to. Another is censorship resistance, which has become a popular topic over the last few months. And then the third is looming the background is layer twos and how have they lived up to the hype? Are they really working? Let's start with the first 
centralization of stake. And the concern here, Vitalik, is Coinbase, Kraken, large staking pools, they are going to own all of Ethereum stake or a majority or you know some number that kind of like breaks the security guarantees of Ethereum. Are you concerned about this? And what are your thoughts on how the roadmap can mitigate it if you do have concerns? Yeah, um, I think it's definitely always a concern. Um, I do think that the concern is overhyped a bit, right? Like uh, the, the trolls uh, do sometimes, uh, for example, uh, try to kind of sneak in this uh, depiction of uh, Lido as being a single centralized actor. And like I think a lot of people in the Ethereum research team are critical of some aspects of Lido, but I think it's important to like, defend it in the sense that it's definitely not true that Lido is a single centralized actor, right? Like there isn't one, you know, owner or sysadmin or dev that has the ability to flip the switch and uh, turn all of the yeah, Lido actors into participants in some kind of attack, right? Like it's a yeah, protocol that uh, distributes a stake between uh, like somewhere between like, is it like 19 or 21 or like some pretty big number of uh, sub-validators where each of those sub-validators only has a few percent of the stake. Uh, so Lido does have some uh, pretty decent uh, decentralization internally. Um, obviously, even taking uh, Lido out, then like Coinbase plus Kraken plus a bunch of others do uh, add up to quite a bit. And uh, it is a, a concern. Um, I think in the short term, the good news is that uh, like, you know, these are good people and they're people who uh, love Ethereum and uh, they do want uh, Ethereum to prosper. And so I think the risk that they're going to do something terrible in the short term is uh, pretty low. I mean, Brian has even been uh, willing to say that like he would rather shut down the uh, Coinbase uh, staking service than uh, turn it into an engine of censorship, right? Um, so uh, obviously, the like those kinds of commitments are commitments that we should hold the uh, ecosystem to, like every single um, centralized uh, staking provider even. Um, but uh, obviously, the good intentions of uh, specific people are not something that we uh, want to rely on in the long term, because we are about uh, being a decentralized ecosystem. And I think in the longer term, there are some uh, good solutions, right? So one thing to point out is that uh, like Bitcoin uh, proof of work decentralization and even pre-merge Ethereum proof of work decentralization, like they're not that high either, right? Like I think uh, Bitcoin is uh, controlled by like more than 50% of it is like two or three mining pools. Um, let's uh, see, I'm going to go up on the uh, internet again and check uh, btc.com stats pool. Foundry USA 23.3, Ant Pool 18, F2 Pool 17.1, Binance Pool 14.3, via BTC 9.5. So like three pools control more than half the Bitcoin network and five pools control like 80% of it, right? So those are pretty scary numbers. They are no less scary and probably even more scary than uh, Ethereum uh, proof of stake. Now, people do sometimes uh, reply by saying, oh, come on, you can't say that proof-of-work pools and proof-of-stake pools are equivalent. Proof-of-work miners can switch pools at any time, but stakers can't. But the reality is that we're like months away from withdrawals, and uh, withdrawals are going to mean that, you know, yeah, if you're not happy with your staking pool, you absolutely can withdraw and you can immediately redeposit into a different one. There is uh, actually even the possibility to add a feature to the protocol, which is even better than a withdrawal, like basically give stakers the ability to transfer their staking power immediately. Now, the one uh, caveat of that approach is that 
the yeah, staker would still be vulnerable to being slashed by the old by their previous staking provider for some amount of time um right but uh, aside from like the in terms of the kind of power in the network like with this kind of feature they would be able to actually yeah, move it over very quickly right so proof of stake absolutely can be upgraded and can be designed to make it possible to move stake between uh, different uh, pools and different providers and even change your own keys uh, very quickly. Uh, so that's something that will increase practical decentralization quite a bit. Withdrawals being enabled is also something that will practically like really increase the yeah, ability for people to solo stake because as a solar staker like you're not going to have this liquidity problem like you'll basically have the same ability to withdraw your money quickly that even uh or almost like the same ability in the normal case as uh, a participant in lido does right in an exceptional case where the chain is uh, like under attack or whatever, then if you signed up and you're a staker at the same time as an attack is happening, then like, you know, sorry, yes, this is what you signed up for and you have to stick around and validate for a couple of weeks. But aside from that exceptional situation, you know, you will be able to just go and leave, right? So as proof of stake gets upgraded, I think uh, over time, you know, we are going to keep improving this uh, stuff uh, more and more. And I think uh, proof of stake is going to get pretty close to a yeah, system where you will be able to just like start and stop staking whatever you want. And I think uh, people are underestimating the extent to which the very real weaknesses of the yeah, current uh, proof of stake system are something that's going to stick around for the long term. Vitalik, would you make the claim that like just as soon as proof of work was kind of switched off, we fully transitioned to proof of stake, that proof of stake, even in its current form, with maybe some centralized actor controlling more stake than we'd want, is still more decentralized than the former Ethereum proof of work network. Would you make that claim? I would say absolutely. I uh, would say that for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, one is um, that uh, once you take into account all of the solar stakers and Lido's internal decentralization, I think it's just uh, true as a matter of fact that uh, post-merge Ethereum is like better on any reasonable decentralization metric than uh, proof-of-work Ethereum or even uh, proof-of-work Bitcoin. The yeah, second thing I would say is that proof of stake has much better recovery from 51% attacks, right? Because if a 51% attack happens, then, you know, you can uh, socially recover from it. You can partially automate recovering uh, from it. You can do a lot of, uh, there is a lot of recovery options that exist that just don't exist at all in uh, proof of work, right? In proof of work, like if uh, half of uh, the miners start attacking, you're pretty much screwed, right? Like there's this argument that like, oh, you know, the good guys are going to all come together and they're going to offer hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, like capital and try to like start bringing the chain back toward the good guys. But like, come on, you know, it's uh, like, just why would you even make a system that relies on that when you can make a system where if an attack happens, you can just delete the bad guys uh, stake and keep going, right? It's... Like just the, the practical ability of uh, doing it, I think, is uh, just uh, much stronger. So the uh, you know, if a fifty-one percent attack, a stake attack starts, like the amount of actual lock-in that it has is much lower. What's always interesting to me about like popular crypto narratives is you know you always have to look at them from first principles and kind of think rationally about them because as a matter of fact, it does seem like people were not complaining about how centralized proof of work Ethereum was in mining pools, et cetera, in, in similar form to Bitcoin. And yet Ethereum through proof of stake has become more decentralized 
and now people are complaining about it. And that's not to say that Ethereum doesn't have a ways to go and needs to work on this problem. I think it absolutely does. But if you just look at the upgrade that just happened, you'd think that Ethereum just became kind of a, you know, a centralized, you know, controlled apparatus of the WEF in the state <laughs> with like with the transition that has not happened. But can we talk about a second maybe looming threat, which is people are wondering about censorship resistance. Mm. What about censorship resistance? Is that still a problem Ethereum needs to solve? I think censorship resistance is um, absolutely an important issue. And I think there is absolutely a risk that we should be worrying about that like particularly with the switch to um like MEV boost uh, type architecture where validators are going to be outsourcing responsibility for uh, which blocks to produce uh, that uh, basically we're going to enter a world where almost all blocks uh, get produced by a couple of uh, centralized actors and uh, those centralized actors end up censoring so this is something that has been talked a lot about internally, both in the Ethereum research community and in the Flashbots and MEV community. And the good news is that there are a lot of uh, mitigations, right? So one of the mitigations is this uh, concept of uh, transaction inclusion lists, uh, aka CR lists, which allow validators to say, hey, I'm going to outsource responsibility for creating a block, but whoever does it has to include this set of transactions. Right. And so you as a validator, if you identify transactions that are being censored, you can add them to an inclusion list and uh, they just are going to be yeah, included in uh, whatever block you accept. There is even a version of this where the validator adds their transactions to the end after the yeah, builder has already submitted their block. Right. Uh, so basically giving the yeah, validator extra freedom to add whatever they want to the end of a builder's block. So the builder doesn't even have to realize that there's like particular transactions that the validator is intent on adding in the same slot. Um, there's uh, all the longer term stuff around decentralized builders and SGX builders and um, MPC and ZKSNARK builders and all of these uh, different concepts. Uh, so basically, there's a lot of these different ideas that try to like, bring back more autonomy uh, to the validator and make sure that the validator still has control and, and the ability to force uh, transactions that they saw to be included, despite builders having control over transaction ordering. Uh, so that's one major mitigation. Another major mitigation, I think, is just ensuring that the builder and realier markets are as competitive as possible. And that's something that I think we've seen a lot of uh, good work on over the last uh, couple of months, right? Like there are also the blocks route builders. There's a couple of other builders. There's a couple of other relayers uh, that are involved. Um, I think uh, there's some dashboard somewhere. Let me yeah, see if I can find it again. MEVBoost.org has one. If you look at top relayers and top builders, uh, so the yeah, Flashbots relay is uh, making 81% of the MEV boost blocks, but then uh, blocks route max profit is uh, making more than half of the remaining ones. And then uh, followed by blocks route ethical, followed by blocks route regulated, and then block native manifold and even are still uh, managing to make blocks uh, at least once an hour. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so Vitalik, like David and I run our mm. own nodes via Rocket Pool, and it's mm -hmm. been really interesting because like you have to pick your relay and your block builder, right? Mm. Of this list, mm -hmm. basically. These are some options. And there's an interesting like question is like blocks route regulated is like OFAC compliant. 
a version of a, a builder in a relay mm-hmm. and blocks route max profit is not, mm-hmm. for example. And so the individual validator chooses. Mm-hmm. Now, are some of these decisions going to be like enshrined in protocol so that a builder or relayer cannot choose to be kind of mm-hmm. like OFAC compliant or something like this? Because what happens is it does seem to present a, a choice to the validators. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do the blocks route regulated or do you want to do the blocks route max profit? Mm. Like OFAC compliant or not? And if you're Brian Armstrong or a Coinbase and you're under some regulatory pressure, I'm betting you're going to pick the regulated option. Does this get solved in protocol in some way? Good question. Um, so first of all, I think uh, the concept of relayers is going to go away when uh, we have uh, in protocol PBS, right? This is... Uh, I think something that's uh, really important, right? So relays are this thing that's like very public and they have like these publicly available names and you have to consciously choose them uh, because relays are this trust demanding role where if you as a validator sign up to a relay that's cheating, then that relay can do a whole bunch of nasty things to uh, steal money from you or cause you to lose money. Within protocol PBS, that trust uh, component is going to go away. Right. And so relays are going to go away. And the only thing that'll be around will be builders. Uh, so builders, I mean, even today, the yeah, builders, uh, they are just like zero access something and they don't really have uh, public identities. Right. I mean, obviously, you are going to be able to uh, discover the public identities of uh, some of the builders. And, uh, you know, there may be some validators that will decide to refuse to accept blocks from uh, some of the yeah, builders, but otherwise, the market of uh, builders is uh, already looking more, quite a bit more competitive than the market for relays, and hopefully the yeah, market for builders is going to get even more competitive, right? Like any competitive builder market, the amount of room that even winning builders have to censor is actually very small because if they start censoring more than a tiny amount, then that decreases the maximum bids that they can afford to make. And so... If you censor more than a tiny amount, even as a winning builder, then uh, you will just naturally start producing lower bids than some of the uh, non-censoring builders. And so uh, validators would just automatically start uh, choosing blocks from the non-censoring builders just because the bids that they offer are going to be higher. So with relayers as this kind of unfortunately centralized uh, trust-providing function removed, I think... uh, a lot of the problem is uh, going to go away. That's good to hear. All right, let's get to the last lens of Ethereum problems that need to be solved. And this mm. is one that was already underway pre-merge, mm. but maybe with proto-dank sharding 4844 gets kind of accelerated. And that is the roll-up centric roadmap. Mm. And I just want to ask you a question about L2 progress and in general. Have L2s so far, layer twos that is, have they lived up to the hype? Have they lived up to maybe even your hopes? Mm. I think my answer is mixed. Um, I think uh, they've uh, they have done a lot in like actually having a yeah, like uh, thriving ecosystems around them and uh, better and better ability to bridge between them. Starting to add some of the yeah, ideas around compression. The zk EVMs have uh, amazed me. I mean, you know, they've uh, gotten to a point of uh, where they are like much faster than uh, I was expecting that they would. So you know, they're just incredibly smart people that have been uh, doing incredibly good work there. The one thing that's probably happened slower than I expected uh, by uh, quite a bit is uh, work on fraud proofs, right? Like uh, both Optimism and Arbitrum, like they haven't uh, taken off uh, the training wheels yet from uh, what I understand, right? 
and uh, it's even in some cases looking like it's going to be quite a while until the training wheels come off right and so this even makes me wonder like if this is the case and like if it turns out that making a good fraud proof is like actually almost as hard as making a good zkvm then uh are we even going to see this like leapfrog situation where some of these optimistic rollups are just gonna at some point move straight to ZK even before the training wheels uh, fully come off on the uh, optimistic rollup? I mean, if so, then that would obviously be a really fascinating outcome. But, uh, you know, at the same time, then uh, that's obviously a huge win for like ZK rollups as a concept um, over optimistic rollups as a concept. But, you know, we'll see. So Vitalik, we've done a good job summarizing the Ethereum roadmap, talking about the post-merge world, and also the things that have been in conversation lately, censorship resistance, layer twos, and centralization of stake, of course. And this really, I think, does a good job summarizing the last two years of Ethereum, I think. Mm -hmm. There was the era of proof of stake and shipping the beacon chain. That was like 2020 to where we are now in September of 2022. What do you hope that the era of 2023 to 2024 is for Ethereum? What should the developers be focusing on? What should the paradigm of development be? Mm. And also, what role should the community have? Mm -hmm. People that are not technical, people like me and Ryan and the content creators and the content consumers and the generalized mm -hmm. Ethereum community, what role do they have over the next couple of years? Sure. So I think there's uh, two big priorities. One of the priorities is to get scaling figured out. And I mean that at all layers of the ecosystem, like getting the Ethereum protocol uh, fully roll-up ready, which includes things like proto-tank sharding, getting roll-ups themselves to be fully ready for users, getting applications on top of them, getting good bridge infrastructure between them, getting all the wallets to support them, like just helping the uh, transition to a fully roll-up uh, centric Ethereum complete. And then the uh, other one is a uh, transition from Ethereum being in rapid developing firefighting mode to Ethereum being in stability mode. I think it's uh, a transition that has to happen. And uh like, I do think that to some extent it's uh, an inevitable transition because as the ecosystem grows, the cost of changing things increases and then there start being all these regulatory uh, concerns and uh, lots of existing stakeholders. And so there is this kind of narrow window to get a lot of uh, important uh, changes through. But at the same time, like the uh, ecosystem really needs to get out of this kind of firefighting, like, you know, hey, the uh, community is yelling at us to get something now, now, now. Um, and so, like, you know, let's make a totally stripped down pragmatic version of it and ship it mode into a mode of like much more deeply caring about making sure that every single step that the uh, roadmap uh, takes is on the path towards some kind of more stable uh, form of uh, long term roadmap that uh, leads toward uh, sustainability. And aside from those two, there's obviously some like smaller items like, uh, you know, the verge, the purge and the splurge account abstraction, uh, ZK snarking things, continuing to improve proof of stake. Uh, but, uh, those are kind of separate. They're also kind of a, yeah. I mean, they're kind of the same thing, right? They're protocol changes and in a lot of cases that are geared more toward uh, long-term sustainability than toward uh, like putting out fires that exist today. But, uh, you know, they uh, they need to happen and, uh, you know, they will happen and we, we can just kind of be fairly calm and careful about it. Uh, make sure not to put too much uh, strain on the development teams, both because that'll cause them to burn out and uh, because... Uh, we don't want it to like become not become possible to create a new client at some point in the future because there's so much work to do. So yeah, you know, those are the goals as I see them. 
So I think what you're saying is, and what I'm also seeing is the era of when merge is over, but also more broadly, the era of when mm. is over. And I think that's because like, you know, communities, the masses, they like the token stuff, they like the prices. And the merge was fundamentally from the community standpoint about reducing the ETH issuance. Mm. So that's going to be the thing that impacts the thing that they obviously care about the most, mm -hmm. which is Ether. And now that's in the rearview mirror, like when merge, like we already did it. So like when sharding doesn't really have the same ring to it. I don't really see as many people going when sharding, when sharding. Not with so gas I, prices this low, David. Yeah, not with gas prices low. That's a good point. But I think Vitalik, what you're saying is that um, like the whole when, when, when part of the Ethereum community is in the rearview mirror. And now that we've shipped proof of stake, we shipped a good version of it, it's working well. And now the meta of Ethereum developers can be a little bit more relaxed and intentional mm -hmm. as to what actually, and maybe even more of a perfectionist as to what actually does get shipped on chain. And so we can make sure that we get 4844 absolutely perfect. We can make sure we get PBS absolutely perfect because we are in a slower and more intentional paradigm of Ethereum development. Would you relate and resonate with these statements? I would say so. I'd say that's a very good summary. Beautiful. Hey, Bankless Nation, as we alluded to in the beginning, we're cutting up this episode because it was so long and we've gotten the feedback that y'all don't like the long episodes. So we're cutting it up, splitting it into two different episodes. The second half of this conversation is coming a week from today, next Monday. And this is the conversation about Ethereum as a platform for network states, Ethereum and its intersection with AI, and overall how DAOs should be governed and what a DAO really is. So stay tuned for that conversation. It's happening in seven days if you are listening to this on Monday. But also, if you're a Bankless Premium subscriber, it's in your feed right now. So switch over to the Premium RSS feed to finish that conversation. Otherwise, I'll see y'all in a week.